Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business show. I'm your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. Is your business to know about the law and how it's affecting every aspect of your life? Is your business to know about what's happening that's really important in the media front, particularly as it relates to the law? And so that's why I'm really excited about uh, John O'Connor joining our uh, media team here. Uh, he'll be doing uh, reoccurring commentaries on business, the law, the political front, and the media. And we're delighted to have him join us. Uh, he's distinguished in uh, the legal profession. Uh, he is an experienced trial lawyer practicing law in San Francisco since the early 70s. And he has tried cases in state and federal courts throughout the country. He served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California, representing the United States in both criminal and civil cases. But he may be best known for his work as the attorney of Mark Felt, whom most of you know as Deep Throat in the uh, Watergate uh, situation. And uh, he became very familiar with the role of the Washington Post in Watergate in his representation of Mark Felt. And so uh, he brings a lot of experience. He also wrote briefs regarding uh, Patty Hearst, the United States versus Patty Hearst, and really had himself involved in some of the biggest lawsuits of the uh, 20th century, representing the uh, federal government uh, in the vast majority of those cases. So we're delighted to have him. He's going to be bringing his interesting insights uh, every other week here on the Price of Business show. You can learn more about him and his work at postgatebook.com. That's postgatebook.com. And that's the name of uh, the, the book that uh, he talks about most often. It relates to media, Postgate. And again, that's postgatebook.com. All right, with that, John O'Connor. Thanks, Kevin. The Price of Business has asked me to speak on alternatives to fossil fuels. I've spoken before about the lack of critical thinking underlying the unnecessary and foolish panic over increasing carbon dioxide levels. In short, they do not have the strong effects on greenhouse gas warming that are postulated by computer models. Moreover, as the 14 micron infrared ray absorption band, the only band where CO2 has a substantial effect, is, for want of a better term, maxed out, the results of increasing CO2 will approach zero. As Chicago Cub fans gather on Waveland Avenue behind the left field wall of Wrigley Field, all equipped with mitts to catch batting practice home run balls. The first few fans to arrive catch many balls per mitt, albeit with many still hitting the ground. As fans and mitts increase, fewer balls hit the ground, but each mitt catches fewer balls. At some point, an additional mitt increases catch balls, not at all. This is where we are today with carbon dioxide. What little warming effect additional CO2 may have had in the past is now approaching zero for newly added CO2. I am just a lawyer who reads science, so don't believe me. Believe Professor Richard Linson of Harvard, formerly of MIT, and Professor William Happer of Princeton, two of the world's most renowned atmospheric scientists. But let us assume for this exercise that additional CO2 is worrisome, and also that nature's natural cooling cycle is not already on the way, as has happened around seven times in the past 10,000 years after warming periods. And let us further assume that hydrocarbons from fossil fuels are to blame, and not CO2 either released by the ocean or the effect of rotting biomass. 
As Western societies lurch awkwardly for alternatives to fossil fuels, let us reflect both on the benefits of fossil fuels and the costs of alternatives to them. Until the 19th century, most people lived short, brutish, unsanitary, dangerous lives of mere subsistence, literally avoiding starvation hand-to-mouth. 30 to 40 years was a common life expectancy in the Western world. Since 1800, a hockey stick rise in life expectancy, income, shelter, and nutrition has been achieved, mainly as a result of fossil fuel-powered machines, themselves made possible by the fossil fuels which are needed for steelmaking and machine manufacturing. Much of our clothing, auto parts, furnishings, hospital equipment are made of fossil fuel derivative synthetics. Fossil fuel fertilizers increase agricultural yields 300 to 400%. The wonderful phones and televisions we now have not only need energy from fossil fuels, but are also made of fossil fuels. We really cannot do without fossil fuels. But the main question we ask here is, do the present unimaginative alternatives to fossil fuels have the benefits promised? Let us focus on the mainstays of wind and solar energy, batteries, and electric vehicles. The world has thus far sunk $5 trillion of direct costs into these alternatives, with another $5 trillion estimated to be indirect costs of mandates and regulations. What do we have to show for these costs? 3% of our energy comes from these sources. But we now know that the world is spending vast increased sums to increase this percentage, all to avoid use of fossil fuels, right now spending about $800 per year in direct costs. What does this increase in alternatives portend? For a small battery Volkswagen, according to Volkswagen, the equivalent of 14 barrels of hydrocarbons, or 14 tons of CO2, are consumed before the car is driven one mile, while five barrels or tons of CO2 are consumed for a conventional auto. For this smaller car, only at 60,000 miles does CO2 savings begin to be achieved. But in large EVs, 25 barrels of hydrocarbons or tons of CO2 are consumed, so they should not achieve savings until well after 60,000 miles. But that is today, and what I will talk about now is the effect of any substantial increase in these alternatives. Today, an EV requires 400% more minerals of all kinds than a conventional auto, and rare earth minerals that conventional autos do not require, at least not in substantial amounts. Originally, these metals cost about $4,000 per electric vehicle, but now with demand having increased, the cost is $8,000 per vehicle. The increase per vehicle will soon be multiples of these numbers. These alternatives, wind, solar, EVs, and batteries, require not only steel, but a basket of minerals such as copper, lithium, cobalt, manganese, and 15 more. They are not in infinite supply. At our present increasing demands, copper supplies will be exhausted in two years. New mines take 16 years to develop. Right now, about 250 tons of earth must be excavated for just one EV battery. With demands for these minerals increasing, the iron law of mining will kick in. That is, the grade of ore mined will be lower and lower. Right now, copper ore is about 1% copper. To get to that 1% ore, a massive overburden, that is soil without ore in it, must be dug up. But if demand increases, the percentage of ore goes down, say 0.1% ore rather than 1%, and thus the amount of soil excavated must increase 10 times or 1,000%. In short, we may soon be looking at 2,500 tons of earth despoiled for every electronic vehicle battery. But even this lower grade mining will not catch up with supply, and massive increases in material costs, presently a small burden on the overall economy, will cause massive inflationary pressures on our total economy. Material price increases of 1,000% are quite realistic prospects. 
but most importantly to our point, mining of 1,000% more soil will use roughly 1,000% more hydrocarbons and therefore CO2 to manufacture these supposedly green machines will thus cause highly significant increases in CO2, the supposedly villainous greenhouse gas. Electric vehicles may soon not save a molecule of CO2 at all and perhaps increase CO2. China is the world's dominant refiner of all these rare earth metals, refining necessary for use. So China will control our economy. Presently, wind and solar panels are on marginally useful lands. In California, the Altamont and San Gregorio Passes are examples of essentially useless lands. But today, renewable projects in Virginia and Indiana are using valuable farm land. Each wind turbine off the East Coast of the United States requires a foundation of 20 by 50 feet concrete slabs sunk deep into the ocean floor with accompanying harm to flora and fauna. Dead whales are washing ashore in record numbers, as we all know. Right now, commonly available electromagnetic pulse bombs can disable our computerized electrical grids, but with fossil fuels for cars, transportation is not affected, our homes can be heated if electric heating is not mandated, and fossil fuel generators can provide assistance. Should an electric grid be shut down, however, and electric vehicles in common use, highways would be blocked by electric vehicles already hampered by erratic recharging stations. The push to so-called green energy does not come from the individualized demands constituting the market. They come from the central planning mandates of governments and NGOs, which can be greatly influenced by special interests at worst and stupidity at best. We should all reread Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Regarding the harmful effect of top-down mandates as necessarily causing misallocation of resources and harm to all. So as we rush headlong into the supposed bliss of a fossil fuel-less future, we will be driving our electrical vehicles backwards into a new form of subsistence existence where most of our resources are used at great additional cost and greatly decreasing benefit, such that the comforts and conveniences we now take for granted will be available only to the wealthy and powerful few, most of whom will be on the gravy train of green subsidies. Progressive mandates will prove harmfully regressive. Al Gore, John Kerry, Joe Biden, and their ilk will be just fine. The rest of us, not so much. In a future where society tries futilely to live without the salvation of hydrocarbon energy.